Yeah, these are very good um, reflections from last week. Um, like you have already said, we said that the biggest enemy to your fellowship with God, the fellowshiping with God means to stay with him until you know him intimately and until you secure details about him and about your life. Then the biggest enemy to that life of fellowship is distractions. And the primary source of distractions is the world. And John didn't want us to understand the world as something completely external to us. He wanted us to understand the world as a nature that is inside of us. And so we said that anybody who is going to advance fellowship with the Father, we need to make a decision to kill the desires of the flesh. This is the one, this is discipleship 101 that Jesus introduced us to, right? If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Because there's something inside of you that has inside of you, inside of me, a, a, a rebellious tendency, an independent tendency that if we follow through with it, if we don't put it under check, if we don't kill it, in many ways, it has a tendency to derail our fellowship with the Father. And from verse 18, we notice that he moved on to deal with the issue of deception. And we, when we looked at it towards the end and put it together with the concept of the anointing or the unction that dwells in us, we realized that the reason why he moved into, decept into deception was because he was dealing in context with a false teaching from the Gnostics, right? That had invaded the church. And this false teaching um, had divided the human life into a natural, unpleasant, dirty, um, morally decadent side to a pure, holy, beautiful spirit. So that this, this um, dichotomy uh, made it impossible for them to accept that Jesus was both God and man. And that's why the topic of the Antichrist came in. But Christ coming in flesh, in human form, validates the fact that your physical life is as much a part of you and as much in God's plan as your spiritual life is. And that God looks at you and sees you holistically, right? Not just um, as a spirit, but holistically as a person. And it is this balanced understanding that is supposed to keep these believers away from deception. And because the antidote to deception that he presents here is the testimony of the Holy Spirit, the testimony of the Spirit of Truth, John says, you don't need anybody to teach you anything. You don't need to subscribe to any form of secret higher knowledge. You have the unction in you. So what you're supposed to do is to abide in him. As you abide in him, like Golda said, that unction grows and you grow in that unction. Your discernment becomes sharpened. You know, discernment is something that you are trained in. Nobody's born with discernment. You are trained in discernment. Your discernment becomes quick because of abiding. And he categorically then makes the statement at the end of chapter to that if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. So in chapter three, the apostle is picking up this concept, right? Or this idea of born of him, because the issue at stake here is the issue of practicing righteousness, of the outworking of a godly holy righteous life which is which was coming under severe attack in the era in which these christians lived and john is saying that your call to righteousness is much more than an external call to a certain code of conduct right god is not just placing before you a set of rules or commandments like he did with israel in the old testament and and saying that if you're going to be a christian you have to live up to these standards. No, your call to righteousness, according to John, is much deeper than that. It derives from, from something that is so one with you that if you deny it, then it's proof that you don't even have it, right? 
It says that you are born of him. So that's a question of origin. You see, you might be ashamed of your origin. <laughs> you might be ashamed of where you came from. You might have issues with where you came from, but you cannot deny your origin. Right? So that a, a denial of your origin is tantamount to a denial of your existence. So that's what John is doing in chapter 3 as we begin. He's appealing to a motivation, an energy source for righteousness that is beyond anything outward. Okay? So let's get started. Golda, can you help us read the first three verses of First John chapter 3 from verse 1 to 3? Okay, verse 1 to 3. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, or we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. Okay, thank you so much, Golda. So, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God. If you have the old King James, you're going to see that the word children there is called sons of God. But the Greek, the root Greek, because there are many Greek words for sons, children. The root Greek word for children here is the word technon. We are the offspring of God. That's what a technon is. A technon refers to, a technon speaks about your origin. It means that there is a basic affection, Right? that you share there is a basic connection that you that you share it's almost like um, the basic connection that you share with your physical father you might be producing a lifestyle that contradicts his own lifestyle but when we do a blood test when we do a genotype test when we do a chromosome test whatever it is whatever medical test it is to determine your origin we are going to find that the very essence of your father, your physical father was transferred to you. At least part of it, right? The very essence of your physical father was transferred to you. And that's what John is saying, that we are to God. So every instruction in righteousness has its basis on an inner capacity, right? On an inner motivation. And he says, behold, what manner of love. It's as though, it's supposed to be impossible for us to be called children of God because this is what the Gnostics, right, in his day struggled with. That how can you say that human flesh, right, that is weak, that is sinful, that is often dirty, that is even broken, how can you say that this thing has anything to do with the pure, spotless divinity of God? How can you say, how can God stoop so low? You know, even the Muslims wonder at this, right? Because the Muslims believe that Christ is only a prophet and not the son of God. And the stumbling block there is, how can the son of God come in human form? I don't know if you've looked at yourself, if you've taken a good look at yourself and <laughs> done an accounting of your strengths and your weaknesses. And then... When you finish that accounting, you tell yourself, I am an offspring of God. Meaning that if people want to see God on earth, it is me they come to. I don't know, have you ever done that kind of accounting before? Have you ever done that kind of computation before? If you do it adequately, you're going to find a lot of inadequacy in yourself. You're going to find a lot of weakness in yourself. Okay, Golda said no, that you haven't done this accounting before. Has anybody done this accounting before? What did you find? Maybe before I continue flowing in this, what did you find? Do you find that your physical body, your physical life is just perfect? You know, it's just the way you want it to be. Right. I don't think there's any of us who is exactly like we want to be. And even if you are sweet 16, you know, <laughs> you are just at the perfect age that everything is perfect. Unfortunately, 
that age will pass and everything will not be perfect. So it's easy to look upon frail humanity. And even the angels do it. They say, what is man? What is man? What is Golda? What is Stephanie? What is Sammy? That you are mindful of him, that your mind is full of him. I mean, they are much more powerful, at least physically powerful creatures that you could have invested authority in, but, but you chose man. And even when man sinned, even when you and I sinned, God pursued us. You know, when Lucifer sinned, right, that was the end for him. But when Adam fell, God, God gave up everything to save him. And that's what John is saying here. Behold, what manner of love. I'm, I'm making this emphasis, even though it seems simplistic, because our devotion to Christ our love for the Father is ultimately going to be affected, going to be influenced by our understanding of his love. If our understanding of the love of Christ is, is a very weak understanding, it's a very emotional understanding, then it means that the texture of our love for God would also be the same way. But if we understand that it is great love, yes, your, your life is not perfect, Maybe all your prayers have not been answered, but it is still great love that you are called the children of God. Right? Because when God decided to create man, he created man in his own image, right? And in his likeness, he created us so that we can contain him, so that we can relate to him. We're the only creatures that can relate to him like that. And then based on our relationship with him, we're supposed to reflect him supposed to reveal him so it was a severe heartbreak when adam turned his back on god in the garden of eden and so but god did not abandon his project of man god began to look for another man in whom his will will be done in whom his heart will be pleased because whether you like it or not this creation is not your creation it is god's creation so god is reserves the right to have a purpose for his creation so the only kind of man that will satisfy the heart of God is the one that is devoted to God's purpose for creation. And Adam's choice meant that he was not that man. And from the garden, God began to look for that man. It was at the baptism of John that God found his man, right? And he cried out, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And the Bible says that the spirit rested on him and remained he was the first one in history that the spirit remained on him. Paul tells us that the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in Christ. So you see, Christ became the embodiment of the man God was looking for. And the story could easily have ended there. But what Christ decided to do was that he decided just to be the head. He said, okay, with all the investments that have been made in me, I will just be the head, but I want a body. I want a bride. I want a people. So that of his inheritance, of his fullness, he decided to share it with us. Behold, what manner of love. That there is an aspect of the inheritance of Christ that you have been called to, to carry. That you have been called to bear. That there is an aspect of the calling of Christ. There's an aspect of the anointing of Christ. There's an aspect of the fullness of Christ that you have been called to bear. You may disqualify yourself, but he certainly does not disqualify you. Behold what manner of love that we should be called the offsprings of God. Now, because we are called the offsprings of God, the world does not know us because it did not know him. What's going on here? What do you think? How are these two ideas related? Because we are the offspring of God, because that's what children is there. The world does not know us because it did not know him. I'm pretty sure if I go to your class or your company tomorrow and ask about you, <laughs> they are going to tell me a lot of things about you. So what do you think? What's going on here? Okay, I think, I feel like um, when Jesus was here, Mm -hmm. he's not giving any regard to a large extent like he wasn't really considered god which he was so imagine that god, jesus that was god was not even giving regard how much more us 
Mm. I think it's just trying to relate both together. See, well, that's a very good thought, right? The world, the world does not regard us because it did not also regard him. Okay, that's a very good thought. Thank you, Kola. Anybody else? Okay, just to put a layer on what God has said, mm -hmm. um, Jesus also said that we, we, the servant cannot be greater than his master. So he said, if he hated me, he will hate you also. Um, and he okay. was saying this in view of you know, the persecution we experienced and what we would experience. Well, mm. uh, one other way I would like to, you know, like to, you know, to build upon what God has said is that. Um, the world could not have ownership of him. Um, they could not claim ownership of him. Um, so in that same wise too, the world will not claim, cannot claim ownership on us. And that would result in some form of rejection as well as some form of um, Will I say isolation? Okay. Yeah. Okay. I think that you're using the right expressions. Right. Thank you, Sami. Um, the word no here is the word genosco, right? And you know, every time you see the word genosco, well, referring to an intimate kind of knowledge, right? A, a relational kind of knowledge. So he's saying the world cannot relate to us because it could not relate to him. Right? That's a way to put it here. It means that on account of your being born of God, right? Because you're an offspring of God, there's supposed to be something about you, a joy about you, a peace about you, a righteousness about you that the world cannot relate to. And many times, because the world cannot relate to it, like Sammy said, it's going to lead to persecution like it did. Right, because you're going to be labeled holier than thou. So if it is true that you're a Christian and everybody relates with you, everybody gets you, <laughs> it it may be that you're not a Christian. Or if you're a Christian, it may be that you're not living according to your origin. Now, this, this question of origin, we're going to see it further in this study, is so important because a dog, when he barks, he barks from his nature. He doesn't learn to bark, right? It just barks. Or, well, it learns, but but the learning is much easier. It just barks. You and I can also bark, <laughs> right? But we have to learn it. And the fact that you can bark with your mouth and it sounds like a dog, it's not really your origin. So it's possible that a Christian can mask the life of God inside so that it has no ventilation. The only thing that is that is being displayed is the external life. And if you live like that, the world will know you. The world will be able to relate with you. The world will be able to measure you. Right. But John says, therefore, the world does not relate to us. They cannot understand the texture of your separation, of your righteousness. They cannot understand why your joy is beyond happiness. They cannot understand why your peace is beyond circumstances. He does not know us because he did not know him. And now because the world does not recognize us, right? Like, like Goda said, because the world cannot relate to us, it's very possible that that can affect your conviction. Not only can it affect your conviction about what to do, it can actually even begin to affect your conviction about who you are. Am I really of God? If I'm of God, why is my life so contrary to everything on the outside? Can I just fit in for once? And that's why John reemphasizes in verse 2, Beloved, now, now we are children of God. We might look frail. We might look uncertain sometimes, right? We might have fears and doubts, but now we are the children of God. However, this is not the end of our possibilities. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him 
as he is. So there is a hope that we have as children of God, that our current frail status is not the end of our journey, right? There are many things that we are not certain of as Christians, especially as it regards to ourselves, right? There are many, I hope that's the case for you, actually. I hope you're not the kind of Christian that has answers to every question because there are many questions that we don't have answers to. But there's one thing we're certain of. We're certain of him. We're certain of him. He has come into the destiny that God has prepared for us. And because of him, we can have hope. Growing up, that was one of my favorite songs. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. All fear is gone. You see, if I look at myself, if I look at my circumstances, if I look around me, there is no reason to be hopeful. There is no reason to be joyful. But because he lives, I can let go of my fears. I can let go of my trouble. I can let go of my worry and trust that the weakness I see today is not the end of my journey. Because he lives. Another way, so this is obviously the futuristic interpretation, right? Of what the scripture means. Another way we can interpret the scripture correctly is in the spiritual, not just in the historical angle. So historically, he's saying that a time is coming in history when Jesus will appear in his glory. And that seeing him is what will trigger our transformation to be like him. That's the historical perspective. And we look forward to that hope. The spiritual perspective is that the, the extent, the image of Christ that you can behold is the image that you can become like. And that's what 2 Corinthians chapter 3 tells us, that we are with open faces looking as in a mirror, right? The glory of God are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. You see, when you come to the scripture, what you see about God determines what will flow out of you. The idea is that the software, the investment that can produce all the virtues of Christ are already inside you, right? But God will need to open your eyes to see something and then by seeing it, you desire it and then you come into it. Which is why it's possible that you can be a Christian but you don't walk in holiness because you have not seen him as holy. Even though the, the software, let's use that expression, the software that can produce a life of holiness is already inside of you, but because you have not seen him in his purity, it becomes impossible for you to walk in holiness, which is why it's possible for you to be a Christian and you never speak in tongues. There are many Christians like that. It's possible for you to be a Christian and you never prophesy. Or if you prophesy, you don't prophesy to a certain measure. It's possible to, to be a Christian and you never intercede. And all of these possibilities are locked up in your vision of him. You see, so what is the vision that you have of Christ? Is it a corrupted vision? You know, earlier before the Bible study started, we're talking about how in some cultures, it is hard to relate to the concept of repentance and forgiveness and owning up that I, I, I am offended, I was offended, and I'm sorry. Regardless of the culture one comes from, the reason why that is difficult for any of us to relate to is because we have not seen him as perfect love. If you see Christ as perfect love, it will be difficult. You will have to work hard to hold on to offense. John says that it is the extent to which we see him. He says, for we shall see him as he is. It's the extent to which we see him that we can become like him. And he says in verse 3, that everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So what do you think? How does this verse 3 relate to what we've just said? Or any other thoughts you have from these first three verses? Okay, um, verse three is, is one that is one of my all-time favorites. Uh, 
I know it's very difficult to have an all-time favorite, but for me, it's one of the top four for me. And it's understanding the power of hope, you know, because First Corinthians 13 tells us that there are three things that are eternal. It talks about love, which we all, we have so many materials and teachings about love. Same thing about faith. In fact, there is a faith movement. But one, the most underrated and the most underestimated of all of them is hope. Hmm. This verse here is the reason why it is in my top four, all-time top four, because it tells us the role that this hope has to play in us. You know? mm. Yeah, so we know that oh, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And then we also know that, you know, it is through love that we are able to fulfill the commandments, you know, and to be like God. But hope is the foundation of purity. Um, mm. Hope, yeah, so this verse three is... is, is it's one of the reasons why it is, it is a jam for me. It's a hit back to back. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Sammy. Yes, so that's essentially the point, right? What is the hope that you have in you? What's the hope that is in you? The hope that you have in you would, it would determine your level of hunger for the Lord. So in case that your hunger has diminished and you have arrived at a place of ease and satisfaction in your Christian life, it's because the hope you have did not take you far enough. In case you are struggling with sin, a particular sin that God has pointed out to you that this thing needs to live your life and it's still a struggle, it is because the hope you have is not clear enough. You need to labor in the word until you see him, until the face of God appears. You know, our struggle with sin, our struggle with purifying ourselves, our struggle with forgiveness right? Our struggle with producing the very nature of the life that we have been given is a clear expression of our lack of encounters. Because the thing that encounters does for us is that it plants a hope in our heart. It plants a hope in our heart. And that's what the apostle wants us to check with ourselves today. What is the hope that you have? The quality of your hope, like we've always said, is what is going to determine the longevity of your faith. It's what is going to determine how far your faith can travel. It's what is going to determine how far your love can go. Right. Thank you, Sami. Okay. Any other thoughts there before we move on? Okay, then. So, Golda, can you read for us from verse 4 to verse 9? Okay, 4 to 9. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For the purpose of the Son of Man was made manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Verse 9. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, but his seed remains in him and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Okay, thank you very much. So if you remember in 1 John chapter 1, the primary revelation, right, that, that John gave us about the Father. Because remember he said, fellowship is the ability to stay with something, stay with someone until you know it intimately. So when you know God, what is the primary thing you're going to find out about him? We said it is that God is light. And light there is a moral kind of light. Of course, the light is also an intense kind of light, but it is primarily referring to the holiness of God, to the moral integrity of God, so that it is not possible, like John was saying, in first john chapter one it's not possible for someone to say that he's having fellowship with the father meaning that the person is coming daily in touch with the light of god and the person is is still in lawlessness says those two ideas are incompatible right so he used that x that illustration that metaphor of god as light in fact he didn't even say god is like light he said god is light right and 
in first john chapter 3 when we look at it next week the towards the ending part of this first john chapter 3 he does tell us that god is love and those uh, expressions are necessary for the things that he's battling with in this letter the first one which is the deception of their time that claimed that external righteousness was not a necessity not necessarily that he claimed it with doctrine but he claimed it with actions right and you see i found out friends that it's possible that in our practice of christianity we can downplay the place of external righteousness how do i know that if we form a kind of christianity that repentance is not a major part of it you know we just downplay certain things and we are so used to coming into the presence of god so used to come into the house of God that we can we can harbor bitterness, for example, and still be praying in tongues. Right? We can we can have anger in our bosom, ready to explode any minute, and still be praying in tongues. It's possible for us to, or we can harbor lust in our vessel, harbor pride in our vessel, and still be praying in tongues. It's possible to have for us to have such a weak version of Christianity because we do not understand the God with whom we have to do or because we do not understand the nature of the God that we have received. So I'm saying that because usually when we come to verses like this that speak expressly about sin, I don't know about you, but I will be honest and tell you that for me, I often tend to think he's not really talking about me, you know. But like I've said in this Bible study over and over again, that the best way to read the word of God, even the terrible things that we read sometimes, is to read it to yourself. Is to first of all, apply it to yourself. And if we are being honest with ourselves, we can agree that we are living in a version of Christianity that knowingly or unknowingly trivializes the matter of sin. And I said one of the ways that that is revealed is in our lax attitude towards towards repentance right towards acknowledging that i'm at fault towards towards acknowledging that i i i am offended or i offended someone or towards acknowledging that there is there is hatred in my heart there's there's lust in my heart there's there's anger in my bosom there's pride in my vessel and so that's what john is dealing with he's dealing with that idea Right, that it is possible to have any version of Christianity that is not always open and humble before God. So it says, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. So he's giving us here the definition of sin because this question of sin is going to be is going to get quite complicated very quickly. So his definition of sin is sin is lawlessness. Another translation says, sin is a transgression of the law. What is a transgression of the law? What is lawlessness? So transgression of the law or lawlessness is living as though the law does not apply to you. Right? It's living, as, it's living without accountability. You know, you can just do what you want, say what you want, be what you want without a sense of accountability. Or at very best, you plead the blood and you say, oh, the grace of God covers me. So that's what he's referring to here. Without a sense of accountability, dwelling in a practice of unrighteousness, without any sense of recourse to the life that you have received. He tells us that Jesus was manifested to take away our sins and in him there is no sin. Before we claim the gospel of victory, the gospel of deliverance, the gospel of prosperity, the gospel of healing, we must recognize that all of those things are secondary. Jesus was revealed primarily to take away our sins. If sin was not such a difficult issue with God, if sin was not such a serious issue with the essential nature of God, there would have been no need for Christ to come. And even if he came, there would have been no need for him to endure the cross. 
the thing that he went through on the cross is supposed to be to us an eternal picture of God's distaste for iniquity, of how iniquity of sin is contradictory in all its shapes and forms to the very nature of God, right? To the foundation upon which God's throne is founded. Said he was manifested to take away our sins. And the only reason he was able to do it is because there is no sin in him. So he's saying that it should be contradictory. At least that's the mindset to have. That it should be contradictory that I, I accept sin in my life. Or I ignore sin in my life. And then he says, <laughs> this is where it gets tricky. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Wow. And maybe we should jump to, or like, let's continue. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil. And of there is the origin again. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil, which is primarily sin. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. For his seed remains in him and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. My question for us is, how do we reconcile these verses, right, with everything else that we know? So what are the things that we know? So I don't know about you, but <laughs> since I gave my life to Christ, I've sinned many times, actually. Um, as much as the grace of God has helped me, and I can tell you, okay, all the things that you might call obvious sins, by the grace of God, they are not in my life, right? But if I'm being honest with you, I can tell you that I've had I've harbored pride in my soul, right? I've, I've had lust in my soul. I've had bitterness in my soul. I've had anger in my bosom, right? I, I will be deceiving you if I tell you, no, I've never. And I don't know about you, but I think that all of us, even the most righteous of us, right, has had this experience or have this experience. So how do we reconcile our experience, our organic experience, with what John is saying, right? Um, and just in case you think, okay, Christianity has been lost after 2,000 years. These people that are writing, if we use Peter, the foremost apostle, for example, Peter sinned against God when he said to God in Acts chapter 10, not so, Lord. And he said it three times. And the only reason that he came out of that vision was because Cornelius had already come. So well, there's no guarantee that if the conversation had continued, he would have been convinced. So that's a basic disobedience. But thank God that the story didn't end like that. Right? Peter also um, was the one that Paul rebuked for being a hypocrite, right? For eating with Gentiles when there were no Jewish brothers around. And when the Jewish brothers arrived, refusing to eat the Gentiles. So we know from at least one apostolic experience, right? That sin, when it comes to transgressing God's law, was part of the experience. And then we also know doctrinally from John himself, because if you remember chapter one, John says that if we say we have no sin, right? We make him a liar and the truth is not in us. So how do you then reconcile those three layers of experience and knowledge with what he's saying in these verses? Sorry, my question was long, but I hope it was clear. Sorry, Josh, can you rephrase? How do you reconcile these four verses that say expressly, right? Whoever is born of God does not sin. How do you reconcile these verses with our experience, which is that all of us sin? 
Secondly, the experience of the apostles themselves, which is that even after they received the Holy Spirit, they made mistakes, which we call sin. And thirdly, with John's doctrine in chapter one, right? That if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. First John 2 verse 1, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, so there's almost an expectation that it will happen. We have an advocate with the Father. How do you reconcile this with this statement? Whoever has been born of God does not sin. Okay, Nancy? Okay, um, I'll try. So um, I think that what, um, what this verse is referring to, who he who sins is to the devil is that, or like, you know, what this passage is talking about is that um, there are there are some times when people just, they, they just, is like, they live in perpetual sin without either without knowing that what they're doing is sin or without acknowledging that what they are doing is sin, which is different from someone making a mistake and immediately acknowledging or realizing that what they have done is sin and kind of related to what you just said about repentance because I know that there are some times when I have just even a, a simple thought and these are like something I've thought about before um, as at a certain point of time in my life. And when I now have similar thoughts now, the Holy Spirit will just, you know, bring it to my knowledge that, no, I wasn't supposed to think that way or I wasn't supposed to say that particular thing. And my my response would be to say, um, I'm sorry, you know, something like that versus someone who does not even that they, they don't have that sensitivity in them that what they're doing is sin so it's like they're living in in a state of like perpetual sin versus yeah. you know the believers who 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 like who are already cleansed you know like who who already accepted jesus christ but they when they make mistakes the holy spirit is quick to to or they're sensitive enough to the holy spirit to know that they have sin so it's like um to to bring it to bring it home is like mm -hmm. um he who sins is like that person living in perpetual sin mm -hmm. yeah and, yeah that's that's just You've used the, the correct, the perfect, let me put it like this. <laughs> okay. You've used the perfect expressions, right? Living in sin, okay. practicing sin, lack of sensitivity to sin, right? And the reason why John is making this demarcation is because a certain version of the gospel was being preached that accommodated practicing in sin without recourse to the conscience. As we read for further, you're going to find out that what John is driving at ultimately in this letter is assurance. He wants us to know things with a certainty. It is beautiful when you see a believer that knows God with a certainty, that has the assurance of God and can bring him on the scene with a certainty. And you see, one of the tools that God gave us right to build our assurance is our conscience so your conscience is is the measure is one of the measures of the assurance that god wants to give you and your conscience is one of the first things that will be pricked if you are born of god and you're practicing so it is true that there are some believers that are caught up in cycles of sin right because i think this question often comes up as well so how about somebody for example that is caught up in a cycle of masturbation. They feel guilty. They know it is bad, but they don't seem to be able to break free from it. So you can correctly say that they are practicing sin, right? Every time that this person falls into this thing. So does it mean that he does not have the seed of God in him? No. What we're looking at here is sensitivity. Are you aware? Do you have the nature in you that informs you that even though you might be struggling this struggle is contradictory to the nature today to the nature of god 
right? Or do you have a nature that wants to give you a crown for your struggle? Which is why it's a very dangerous thing when because of some of the difficulties we face practically in dealing with people, some people begin to attempt to bend truth, right? Or to bend the doctrine and say, oh, X, Y, Z is not really a sin or it's not really a problem. That is never the solution to the problem. At least that's not John's approach. John's approach is always to point you back to your origin. That even though you might be struggling, that you have inside of you the software for freedom. You just need to come into a certain kind of knowledge, right? Because it says, whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. And said that is the extent to which you see Christ, that you can be transformed. So it could be that there is a certain level of knowledge you and I need to come into for certain habits and practices of sin to end in our lives. And if I ask you, you're going to find out, like you're going to tell me that this has been your experience, that as you have grown in your knowledge, not just your intellectual knowledge of Christ, but more importantly, your experiential relational knowledge of Christ, you have seen certain things for their true color and you've been able to let them go. And that would not have been possible if you didn't keep growing, right? If you didn't keep pressing to grow, which is what abiding is. It's because you were growing, you were hungry and thirsting, that you came into those levels of knowledge and you broke into freedom. So anything that keeps you on your toes in that sense, by reminding you daily that this thing is not off God, is a good thing. I hope that's clear. Yeah. Sammy, I saw your hand up just now. Oh, yeah. Um, you, got, you kind of mentioned it, but I was going to talk about, um, I was looking through one of my Bible versions, and there was a footnote that talked about that. said, um, I, I, um, in addition to that, uh, he who makes the practice of sin or practices sin, he also added, he who justifies sinful practice. Mm. You did mention it, and where you said it, when you gave the example of, um, you know, when you said it's not just the struggle of the sinful act or the struggle with the sinful act, but also there's one where a medal of that struggle. Mm. <laughs> you know, where people, yeah. begin to, people begin to concoct justifications and twist scriptures just to validate you know, to come to that place where you say well you know what actually i'm not so bad after all um i'm a work in progress <laughs> Put on yes thank you sammy thank you yeah he who justifies sin i didn't want to take us into the greek right to show us that um there is a tense in the greek called the present continuous right and that's the tense actually that the writer is using here because the reason why they want to do that is the average person is going to read this in English, not in Greek. But essentially what John is saying here is whoever has been born of God does not continue, does not make a habit, does not make a practice of sin. Why, why does he not do that? Because of the seed. He's, he's referring to something beyond any external motivation. It's not because of a, of 10 commandments written on a plaque that I threat to you, it is because of an organic life that you have inside of you. And he says he cannot sin because he has been born of God. So there is a life inside of you that the possibility of that life is that it cannot sin. And, and that's the hope you and I are supposed to have. Remember, we said that the quality of your faith is going to be determined by the quality of your hope. So let your hope not be we are stuck in sin and we cannot get out. Let your hope be that there is a quality of life, the same life that can bring deliverance to the captives, that can bring healing to the sick, that can bring refreshing to the thirsty. That same life can bring an end to sin. And in practice, friends, God deals with things in our lives usually one step at a time. And I think this is the problem that we often have when we as Christians start becoming legalistic because when you have overcome something it's very easy for you to be ruthless with other people who 
have not overcome the thing. Because when you meet the average person who comes to Christ, you might be able to instantly point out 15 things that you are sure that God does not like about their lives. But there's none of us that can change 15 things at the same time. right? And God is fully aware of that. Fully aware of that. So it means that right now in your life, there are certain things in your life that maybe God is not highlighting so much. And that's why you may think that you're perfect. But a season is coming in your work with God where he's going to highlight it because there is always something that God is dealing with. And I believe that in this passage that we're reading, the thing that God wants us to add to our faith from this verse is a culture of repentance. Because I think the way that we practice sin, let me just speak plainly. The way that we practice sin is that we ignore it. And this is something that I've seen common, that you can have Christians that are bearing grudge against each other, yet we are fasting and praying and calling on God as though the grudge in our hearts does not matter. The apostle is saying that this is a contradiction to the very nature of God. How is it that we are fellowshipping with the Holy Spirit, but, but grudge is like, is like a second-eye doll in our midst? That we cannot humble ourselves and go to the person who offended us and say, see, you, you offended me. Let's, let's deal with our problem and deal with it once and for all. Yes, this is what God has shown me, that there is a lack of true repentance in his church. There is a lack of true repentance. right? And we must lay to heart the dealings of God and come to him and say, what is it in my heart that is not of you? Like I said, he cannot show you everything. But in every season, there will be something that he will show you. And this is a sign of healthy fellowship. And it's my belief that when we return to this radical, basic practice of Christianity, that we're going to find out that the glory of God is going to rest on us like never before. Okay.